what do you want to be when you grow up? I never knew how to answer that. And actually, I never really even liked that question. It always made me feel like boxed in. So I got to be a doctor or something. Yeah, right. I mean, the closest thing to me being a doctor is my handwriting is horrible. The world is huge and I want to make a difference. I want to make some money, have fun, love people along the way. Is there a job for that? Now, if you have ever felt misunderstood in your career aspirations, or if you ever felt like you're going to face a challenge or you currently are in a challenge and you just weren't sure or you aren't sure if you're going to make it through, if you've ever wondered what it takes to make your own path in this life, this episode is for you. Welcome to the Impact of Leadership podcast, where we believe that no one drifts into excellence. I'm your host, Steve Shear, and today's episode is featuring an exemplary leadership story. Dr. Sarah Ray Stalinga is my guest today, and in this conversation, she gives us the key to determining our success. So you gotta listen for that. Sarah is the president and CEO of Easter Seals, serving Chicagoland and Rockford, Illinois. She has led teams of less than 10 with small budgets and teams of several hundred with tens of millions in the budget. She's faced mountains in leadership multiple times. Taking from the classic book, The Leadership Challenge, you gotta listen for a few specific things for how Sarah modeled the way, inspired a shared vision, she challenged the process, enabled others to act and encouraged the heart of her people. Well, that's enough for me. Let's get into it. Here is my conversation with Sarah Ray Stalinga, president and CEO of Easter Seals. I've always been a hybrid. And what I mean by that is a person who doesn't fit neatly professionally in a lane line. Um, and I've spent my career kind of straddling lines that most people don't straddle, you know, whether it be between research and practice, or whether it's between the K-12 education space and the higher education space, um, or when I was at the University of Chicago Urban Education Institute, it was straddling an elite research university and then having my other foot in the low-income communities that we served at the Urban Education Institute. And I think early on in my career, that was presented to me, and I kind of saw that the fact that I was a hybrid and crossed boundaries well uh, as a weakness. Uh, you know, it's people often portrayed to me as you've got, you've got to pick, you can't do both of these things. You can't be a nonprofit leader and a professor. You can't be an expert in the education space in, in higher ed and in K-12. Um, you can't be a researcher and a practitioner. Um, and what I've seen as my career has progressed is being a hybrid, a boundary crosser has actually served me really well. And I think part of that is the fields that I've been in have evolved. And part of it is I've learned to kind of embrace the fact that I sit on a lot of different sides, um, you know, in the professional space. So I guess in short, professionally, who I am is, is all of those things. I'm a, a K-12 expert and a higher education expert. And now I'm hoping and trying to become a special education expert at Easter Seals as well. And I think about myself as being both a researcher, kind of analytical expert, but also 
a practitioner and leader and a, and a nonprofit leader as well. Good. Um, I am, I, I was hoping, I never know where some of these questions are going to land us, but I was, I was hoping it would be um, less clean than some others that, that I've interviewed because what your story is going to do, I, I'm anticipating uh, your professional career track, where you are currently, the stories along the way are going to encourage people that, that feel that, that feel that tension of being, you know, a boundary crosser, as you said. So before we discuss your role at Easter Seals, um, I really think it would be great if you could walk us through your progression as an educator. I grew up in a household with with a father who was in higher education and a mother who was in K-12 education. So education was kind of in my my lifeblood, you know, from the time that, mm-hmm. I, that I was young. And when I got to my senior year in the college at University of Chicago and was trying to figure out what I was going to do, um, I had been a tutor in the neighborhood schools program there, which a, a lot of undergraduates do that as their as their job, which essentially was going into Chicago public schools and, and tutoring in the public schools. And I was on a campus bus and found a brochure uh, from this organization called the Center for School Improvement at the University of Chicago. And I, I fell in love with the work. I think the calling to me was the way that the organization portrayed the bridge between research and practice as the key to, to transforming urban public education and bringing together the idea that you would bring together these expert researchers with master practitioners, teachers, principals, to create solutions to improve public schooling. Um, and so I made it my mission that I was going to get an internship there. And of course, this was before there was email or internet. Uh, that was just, we were on the very cusp of that when I was graduating college. And so I basically camped out on the doorstep of the Center for School Improvement and through some uh, helpful connections at the university, one of my uh, longtime mentors was the provost then, Jeff Stone, who's a law school professor at University of Chicago. So he got me the introduction I needed to Tony Brike, um, who is the founder uh, of the Center for School Improvement. And eventually I got, got myself an internship there, a little bit to my parents' dismay, I think. You know, I turned down graduate school offers and I took this offer from this pretty small university-based center for $18,200 a year. And the only way I could afford to uh, take this job was to also be the assistant track and cross-country coach at the university. And then I bartended at the university pub. So I had these three jobs and this one intern position. Um, But what that turned into for me was over two decades, a pathway from intern to executive director there, um, which is an extraordinary um, career path, uh, you know, that I, that I was really fortunate to have. And so essentially, you know, step one was the intern position. And step two, I decided I was going to be an education researcher. And so, you know, I got a PhD in sociology and I, I landed in the sister organization to the Center for School Improvement at the university called the Consortium on School Research and started doing education research there. And and I have to tell you, Steve, at that point, I thought this is going to be this is going to be my career. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 2008, the university decided that they were going to merge three education organizations within the university into one organization. So they they merged the consortium, which was a research organization, with the university's teacher education program and the university's charter school. And I got pulled out of the research organization to become the number two of the, the of the new thing. And 
And I think in some ways that was the turning point in my career where I went from being a researcher that basically managed, you know, a research project with a couple hundred thousand dollars in it to being the number two and really the architect of the merger um, of bringing these three pre-existing centers together and, and doing startup on a fourth unit, uh, which is an education tools division. And my job as the number two was to architect and, and kind of be the, be the person who led the merger. And that, um, what I discovered in that, I guess, is that while I loved being an education researcher, I was using all of these other skills and leadership and Mm -hmm. vision and, you know, institute and organization building um, that really suited me and that I really loved to do. So I went from that $200,000 research project to basically architecting and and eventually leading, you know, a 50 million operating 500 employee organization. What would be, if you you had to draw one thing out or, you know, one, one of the top three or five things, what did, what was one of the most surprising things you learned in that process of working through that merger, being now in charge and having that responsibility? Because that is a massive leap in responsibility. <laughs> um, so, what, what? Yeah, what were your? What was some surprising lessons that you learned there? Yes, it it definitely was a big leap. Um, I I think I was chosen for that position because I had I had been there for so long that I really knew people and had relationships across all the precursor organizations. So I had that going for me. And I, I had good leadership instincts, you know, looking back on that, it, I had a lot of learning to do. It was very green. Um, and I guess my biggest learning was I recognized early on that I had the ability, I had a gift to be able to create a vision. I could see several steps down the road. Mm-hmm. These are the four phases we need to go through to take these separate organizations and make it make the institute real, give it an identity, give it a brand. But what I didn't understand as a new leader is the way in which you have to bring your people along in that. And I started out by being way too far out in front and trying to dictate the vision. And people were not ready for that. Um, it was too much change too fast. I had moved up the hierarchy really quickly, you know, like I had double leapfrogged my boss, essentially. And so I had to, after about six or seven weeks of trying to roll out this vision that I thought was so perfect, I had to take a step back and rewind to have conversations really with the people that worked within the organization about their vision and the direction that they thought we should go and kind of facilitate towards the vision rather than trying to dictate it. And that was just a huge learning for me. In the end, we ended up in going in the direction almost identical to the one that I had laid out. But the way that I was trying to, mm-hmm. to roll it out was, was the wrong way to do it. And that was a humbling but really critical lesson to me as a leader. That's really good. A couple other questions that popped into my head. What, what, questions, what were some questions that you were trying to answer during your years as a research analyst? So as a researcher, I was really focused on um, teacher quality, teacher evaluation, principal leadership. Um, and, you know, some of the driving questions behind that, which I still think are, are really important because I think they, they blend into the questions that all leaders should be thinking about in terms of developing their talent. 
on the teacher evaluation side, it's, you know, how do we build a system of understanding teacher quality that actually is developmental? You know, it, help, it helps teachers to grow into their role um, and at the same time is evaluative in a fair and equitable way such that we can protect students, you know, if there are, are teachers that need development or that should not be teachers or whatever the case may be. And so that teacher quality research was really important to me, I think, because it was about ultimately improving schools for kids, but it also was about finding an equitable, supportive way to help teachers to grow and learn. So I spent the majority of, of my research um, identity and time and talent focused on those questions about teacher quality. And then I, I know I'm kind of moving through some of your career path here, but um, how would you describe your work at uh, the University of Chicago Urban Education Institute? Because I want to kind of draw that out a little bit more. Yeah. So the, the Urban Education Institute um, is really focused on trying to dramatically improve the educational and life pathways uh, for low-income youth of color, and doing that through multiple different domains of work through these four units within the Urban Education Institute. So at the heart of the work is the university's charter school, which um, serves low-income African-American students on the south side of Chicago, and creating pathways and trajectories for them, uh, both you know into college and, and into the workforce, and basically creating a model and demonstrating that this is, you know, that this can happen and that this is what low-income students deserve. Um, and, and so at the heart of that, having that education model, and then there is a teacher training program, which really develops talent, um, placing teachers into schools and a research organization that tries to capture and understand what works and what matters in terms of school improvement. And then an education tools division that tries to push out research-based tools to improve schools. And so my work there essentially, you know, for the, my, the majority of my time there was in leading and overseeing that work. You've been speaking to it for the last several minutes, but I want to ask this question specifically and, and, and let you answer. What, what was driving you as an educator and a researcher? I think the driver behind uh, my whole career, and this in some ways is a nice segue into the Easter Seals chapter, uh, is equity and access. That's been the consistent thread. It was the consistent thread then, and, and it's a consistent thread now. And at the Urban Education Institute, equity and access, I've talked about some of those things, is about you know equity in terms of young people, families, especially youth of color, having access to high quality educational opportunities at all levels, um, whether that be, you know, in the elementary school space, the high school space, or access to higher education. Um, and, and really that access and equity piece, I believe, is the key to long-term outcomes of all people. And that, you know, young people of color have been systematically, there are systematic barriers to them being able to access uh, quality education. And, and I think on the Easter Seal side, equity and access, you know, we have two pillars of work at Easter Seal serving Chicagoland and Greater Rockford. One focuses in the early childhood space and the other focuses in the autism and disability space. 
And both of those pillars of work, both of those spaces are also about equity and access. So, you know, on the early childhood side, equitable access to high quality early childhood education is one of the most important determining factors about long-term outcomes. And that's an equity and access issue. And similarly for people with disabilities, equitable access to high quality appropriate education and access to the workforce, you know, in the long run are, are key, kind of key levers. And so I would say those have been the two themes. That's what, that's what calls me to get out of bed in the morning mm-hmm. is, is feeling like the work that I'm doing is contributing to opening doors and removing barriers and changing and transforming really long-term trajectories for vulnerable populations. So you built an incredibly proven track record at the University of Chicago as a professor, a researcher, a student. So how did you end up getting to Easter Seals? It's it's a great question. Um, you know, I know that when I was making this transition, uh, everyone, including even the recruiters that, that recruited me for the position, kind of thought, well, is this, this is so different from the Urban Education Institute. Um, you know, why, why would this be a good fit for you? And one of the things that I had to explain to people is actually the work of Easter Seals serving Chicagoland and Greater Rockford and the work of the University of Chicago Urban Education Institute are kind of actually strikingly similar in terms mm-hmm. of they're both operating schools. They're both active in you know the equity and access issues. The early childhood space was very familiar to me. And so when I first started having conversations um, about coming to Easter Seals, you know, I think the draw for Easter Seals towards me was the fact that they were looking for somebody to come in and do quite a bit of turnaround and transformation work. Mm-hmm. And I had done work similar to that. I mean, it's it's it may not be on the surface immediately apparent, but merger and turnaround are actually very similar in some ways. There's a change management component that's similar. There's a rebuilding and architecting and restructuring piece that's similar. And then just the people part of it, the change management part of it is similar. Um, And so, but I think the real draw for me to Easter Seals, I mean, I was intrigued by the idea that I could do that kind of structural work because I find that to be really interesting and stimulating and I have good instincts around it. But what really captured me was the work. You know, they had me, the board had me come in and walk around um, in the Easter Seals Academy Chicago campus And I was just struck and amazed at how high quality the work was, at how high quality the leadership was, um, at the commitment to the mission, and honestly, just how beautiful and wonderful the children are. And I thought, you know, this is such an interesting problem. We've got this core of high quality work with high quality leadership wrapped in this structure that needs to be transformed. And I thought this is work worth saving. And that's essentially why I took the job. What was the situation when you took the position of president and CEO? Could you describe that for us? There was a lot of learning for me in that. Um, You know, I talked earlier about how moving from being a researcher leading research projects to being the number two of a big complicated thing and doing a merger was, was like a baptism by fire. I mean, it was very, very hard. Uh, I had to learn, the learning curve was really steep and I just had to, I mean, I had no choice but to just kind of learn on the job. I, you know, 
I have a PhD in sociology. I never went to business school <laughs> and, and I really had to just learn by doing, you know, to quote Dewey. And I would say the Easter Seals position was like that as well. I mean, certainly my experience at the University of Chicago Urban Education Institute gave me a lot of tools and a lot of what I was seeing early on in Easter Seals looked similar to things I had seen before, but there were also areas that were absolutely brand new to me. And the, the pace was very frenetic just given how hard things were. So essentially here's the high level picture. I, I mean, the board hired me under the guise of that this was a turnaround situation. And so I, I knew that um, theoretically, I would say that it was um, in worse shape than I really understood before I took over, maybe worse than the board knew entirely. And at a high level, it was um, several million dollars of unpaid accounts payable, um, a line of credit that was maxed out at close to $3 million dollars over $20 million worth of debt, uh, a lot of uncollected accounts receivable, you know, a, a real lack of clarity just about the kind of organizational direction, you know, from the, from the leadership. And then some really interesting and sticky stuff just around, um, you know, a construction project that was overway, underway that, um, you know, had some complexity around it. And so I think the, one of the, the funniest things that, in hindsight, it's funny. One of the funniest things that happened is I, I signed the contract um, on a Friday. And on Monday, the board chair called me and he said, um, yeah, there's these three things that I forgot to tell you. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. And uh, which he and I joke about today. He admits that it was, it probably wasn't the best move. But one of the things was a set of disputed change orders, you know, between the construction company and Easter Seals on this um, project, this construction project we had underway, which had essentially halted construction and there were liens on the building. Um, and so, you know, here I was in this situation, I was 48 hours on the job with all of this financial pressure from the debt and the unpaid bills. And I mean, when you're in that situation and you have an organization as big as ours, which is about 60 million operating, um, I mean, the phone would ring all day of people trying to collect, you know, they hadn't been paid for 90 or 120 days for you name it, supplies, snow removal from last winter, hotel bills from the gala 18 months ago. Um, and it's just, it was so overwhelming, you know, to figure out like, where do you start to get out from, from underneath all of this? And, and I would say the biggest, most dire thing was the cash situation. So it's one thing if you're an organization that has a lot of debt, but you have some cash on hand. Um, there was the liquidity was was just re in a really scary place when I took over. So that's kind of what I in inherited. And it sounds ideal. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, like what I, this is, no everybody's everybody's gonna be checked out. This was this is like a dream job, is what. You said. <laughs> well, so so I know we're not gonna be able to do it justice, but. Um, I would love to hear, like, how do you prioritize in that situation? Like, what what did you what did you do to get things going? Because like, you can't answer every single phone call and sign all of the things at the same time if you don't know what situation you're in. So, how, where did your brain go? Because I think there's things that all of us can learn from this, whether we're in the same position or not. Yeah, it's it's not easy, uh, but I would say 
even though turnaround is a highly specialized version of leadership, that leadership prioritizing is among the most important skills that you have to pay attention to as a leader, no matter what kind of organization you're running, no matter how big or small or what stage it's in. Um, you, how you spend your time as a leader is the, it's the most important determining factor of, of how successful you can be. I think the tree, I mean, when I coach executive directors who are, you know, leading for the first time or, you know, people who report to me who are leading sub pieces of the organization, I always tell them prioritization and how you spend your time is, is just key. Your time is your most important asset more than anything else that you have. And so, you know, I, I think I told, told you earlier on that one of the things that I really, one of the skills that I'm very grateful that I have is being able to look around the corner. And so what I did is I looked to the, the future end game, where do we want to be 18 months from now? And then you have to map backwards to where you are now. And obviously the cash situation was the most important thing to attend to. And so that's what I did first. Um, we were in workout with the bank, which means you're on the bank's naughty list. And what that mean, and rightfully so, um, because of the level of debt that we had and the cash struggles we were having. And, you know, I had to sit down with, with the members of the turnaround team from the bank in the first three weeks, I think, after I started. And they posited Easter Seals problems as a fundraising problem, that essentially you have to fundraise your way out of this. And I immediately said to them, I disagree with that. This is a 60 million operating organization. Um, you, I can find four or $5 million faster in the operations than I could ever fundraise it. And no philanthropist or foundation is going to invest in this organization in its current state. It's too, they will kick the tires and they will see that this is not a place they want to invest their dollars right now. And so essentially in the, over the first nine months, um, we worked through a series of restructuring moves, which um, a lot of that was closing open positions, to be honest. Um, you know, we just, anything that if there was a position that no one was sitting in, we're not going to fill it. Some of it, of course, was um, actively laying off staff. There, there was a small part, but a lot of, you know, at the senior leadership level, there was some of that. Um, but the rest of it was just about figuring out our dollars, the, the dollars that we manage from public money sources and how do we manage them better. And so we accomplished that in terms of the restructuring and getting ourselves back on, on good footing financially within about nine or 10 months and I give my CFO, Sarah Baburka, and my COO, Barbara Zawacki, a lot of credit in that. It really was not me. It was the three of us working together. And, you know, one component counting nickels and dimes every day. And the second was Sarah really getting in and rolling up her sleeves and figuring out how to manage the money that we had from the various sources that we had better. And we, I, I will tell you, the major part of the financial turnaround happened within the first nine or 10 months. Um, we paid off our line of credit. We got current on all of our accounts payable. And a lot of that was just about better managing the cash we had, which in some ways is, 
you know, it's sad in the sense that it probably was avoidable that Easter mm-hmm. Seals got to the point that it was. But, you know, figuring out how to do that better um, really brought the organization to a new place. So that I think we were about 10 or 11 months in. Um, we restructured all of our debt. Uh, we got taken off the workout list. And and that was sort of turning the first turnaround page was was getting that right. But it was there were a lot of really hard days. Um, there really were days where I thought that we might not make it. Um, and that was I've never been in a situation, you know, like that before. Yeah. So right there, talk just a, a little bit about how what did you do? What things helped you move forward in those moments of risk and unknown outcomes when, when you're just not sure you believe in the why you, you now believe in the people around you, you're moving forward, but now it's like, I don't know if we're going to make it. What, what, what kept you moving forward then? Well, certainly Sarah and Barbara did our little, I sometimes tell our board we're like the three legs on the three legged stool. Um, and I think that's a leadership lesson. You can't do it alone ever. Um, the three of us had complementary skill sets. We picked each other up, um, you know, on, on days when things were hard. We strategized together um, around just countless, uncountable challenges that we faced. And so I think that's number one. I think number two was um, having a long-term kind of um, mapping out the, the, the multiple different pathways that this could take. And I, I mean, as a leader, you're responsible for mapping out the worst case scenario and doing that the best way you can. And for me, that meant sitting down with, um, you know, members of my board quietly and saying, I don't think we're at this point, but if we have to unravel this organization, how do we do that in the right way? So mm-hmm. we, we built that plan. That is a very scary plan wow. to have to build. But it's, you know, it's sort of like the bankruptcy route for a nonprofit. But how do you do that in the right way? And just in case, so it, it's if you get to that point where you run out of cash, how can you do that in a way that protects employees and protects the work and does that responsibly? And so, honestly, it, I, I had that plan in my back pocket. I hoped that I never had to use it, but I had it. And, and I think the other part is every single day making sure that I, that we, the three of us, were all spending our time on the most important levers, you know, to ensure the organization's survival. And, and so I think it's a combination of you bolster one another, you plan for the worst responsibly, and then you execute every single day around a targeted plan. I think as soon as you get overwhelmed and you start scattering your time and energies around in a situation like this, it's likely that you'll fail. You just, you will not be able to make it. And then you know, honestly, it's not a bad thing to get a little luck here and there. <laughs> and oh, sure. One of the things that happened, and this is one of my favorite, I mean, I, I really think it's a, it was a miracle. Um, I, I don't use that word often, but we, the first August after I started was the, was the worst cash situation that we were in. I started, um, you know, around June 1st in 2019. And so this was, you know, in, in August and we run payroll every other week. And so there's two months out of the year where there's three payrolls in one month. And, you know, our payroll is close to a million dollars every other week. And we got to the third payroll in August and I just didn't think we were going to make it. You know, I didn't, I was worried we weren't going to have enough cash. And that month we had a bequest come through from, uh, 
a gentleman who was on the spectrum and he, you know, he didn't have any living family. He gave part of his estate to, to us. And the money came from, um, I talked to the executor. It came from, uh, he collected records, LPs, um, and he had, he kept them in this big garage, um, like a barn almost. In fact, the executor said it was, there were so many that the, that the building was actually sinking into the ground. And so they sold all of those collector's records and, and they gave the money to Easter Seals. And he, he said that he, in his will, that he wanted to be buried with um, John Lennon's Imagine on CD and with his cat Bobo. And, and he wanted his money to go to Easter Seals. And so here we were in the middle of that just horrific month in August. And I get this phone call that, that we're going to get $300,000 bequest. And I really, I mean, it was a miracle. And it wasn't the only thing that saved us. But it was the timing was couldn't be more perfect for us. And and so we had moments like that where I was like, this was meant to be. Us persisting and getting through this is, you know, it was meant to be. I mean, you have a you have a great plan. You have a strong team around you that that's bolstering uh when when you know one of you wavers, the other uh leg of the stool is like, hey, no, 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 no. We we got a plan, stay with it. And then John Lennon and Bobo show up. I mean, <laughs> exactly. You can't plan for that, but that's a great part of the story. Uh, that that is that's so good. Uh, there there's a ton here, and this is a big question. This next question is a big one. I, I'm gonna love your answer. I already know it. I don't know what, I don't know what your answer is gonna be. I don't, but I love where this is gonna go because you've accomplished so much. You 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 have seen the map end. And then you still have to keep going in multiple multiple organizations. So here's the question: When were you at your leadership best? And and if you could, you know, describe what was happening in you personally and around you professionally. And if you've already talked about it, just stay there for a minute or two. But help us know, like, when were you at your leadership best? Oh my gosh, there's so many key moments. But I think the time when I was at my leadership best was in that month of August. I, you know, people in our organization were very scared. Mm -hmm. Um, As leaders, we, we didn't tell our staff the details, but they knew that things were bad. They were receiving the phone calls, collections, phone calls. They were hearing, you know, the whispers. And, you know, I remember this moment um, during that month when we pulled all of our staff together, um, you know, all of our HR tech finance kind of administration, administrative services together. And I sat them all down in a room and I just shot straight with them about what was going on. Um, you know, and I said, we are, I, what I want to do is just be transparent with you about where we are and where I see us going and why I think we're going to make it. And that, I didn't realize how countercultural that that transparency was, how different that was from mm-hmm. what they had experienced. And it was absolutely transformative. Um, I think the uh, I did something similar. Every single time we made any kind of budget cuts in our schools, I promised the schools that I would come to talk with them about it in person. And those were some of the hardest meetings I have ever had to run as an executive where literally I would go into a room with the entire school staff and I essentially would have to own 
these changes and cuts we were making. Um, I think maybe one of the hardest ones was we had to make some cuts between Thanksgiving and the holidays. We literally cut positions and, you know, staff members were like, how can you do this to people? Um, this is unconscionable. And why is it necessary to do this now? And I had to stand in front of them. And one of the things that I did, and I'll, I will never regret this, this is one of the most important leadership moves I ever made, is I buffered every single person below me from those decisions. Um, I said, this is not the principal's decision. Do not blame the principal. Do not blame the person who oversees all the schools. These are my decisions. If you want to be mad at somebody, be mad at me. And then I stood in front of them and I, and I took the heat. Um, even, even to the point, at one point, a parent confronted me about some of the changes that I'd had to make and was like, look, you built this beautiful new gym and now you know, you're removing this position that's really important to my, my young person with disability. But I think what I feel most proud of in that hard time was that I owned all of that and I stood I stood in front of people and I took responsibility for it. And I was transparent about the reasons why, the rationale behind it. And I think one of the leadership lessons in this, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard this before, is I try to take responsibility for the things that go wrong and give credit to other people for the things that go right. I think yep. that's what it means to be a leader, a servant leader, is you're in service of the mission you're temporarily occupying this leadership position. You don't think of it as yours. Um, you know, it's an honor to sit in it while you're in it, but it doesn't belong to you. And your job is to bolster and put forward the people that work for you and to kind of be the one to take responsibility for anything that goes wrong. And definitely in those moments during, during that really dark, hard time, it was hard. I was exhausted and there were days I didn't want to do it, but I'm very, very proud uh, that I did that. I knew I was going to love your answer. <laughs> I knew it. I didn't know what you were going to say, but I, I did. I loved it. And I can't wait to actually listen back to this because um, I gained so much in these interviews. Before I ask this last question and have you close us out, uh, it probably would help people to close the story loop. How, how is Easter Seals doing currently uh, after all of that? It is. It's really amazing. Uh, how much things have changed. I mean, the, the financial turnaround chapter, we really did close that before the pandemic started. Um, and then we were sort of like the, um, the, you know, the, the bequest, unexpected bequest that we got, we got another happy surprise. We literally got out of workout with the bank in December of 2020. And then we found out at the end of 2020 that we were lucky recipients of Mackenzie Scott dollars and, and and it's I'll tell you why the timing was so fortuitous because we got the money when we didn't need it, and I think that if we had gotten it in the midst of the financial turnaround, we would have been really tempted to use it on short-term priorities, but we were forced to do the hard work of fixing, you know, the operation and the financial operations. Um, and again, I give Sarah Boberka, our CFO, just an immense amount of credit for that. And so then, you know, we had these dollars as a way really mostly to build an endowment um, for the, the long-term future of our organization and to strategically pay down some of the immense debt that we had. And that was just such a blessing. And so then as we moved into, the, um, into 2020 and, and 2021, dealing with the pandemic, um, you know, I'm very proud that we were open providing services, both in our autism side of the house and in our early childhood side of the house, really continuously 
throughout the pandemic, almost all of that in person, which I give our employees just so much credit for that, um, that they were willing to do that in such an um, uncertain and, and dangerous time. And now, you know, we're in a different kind of place where it's there's still a lot of transformation work going on um, in other areas like technology and um, and of course, CCB is an important partner in, in the technology transformation um, and in human resources. But I would call what we're doing more enhancements and fine tuning, and we're building our brand, um, and we're financially viable. Um, that there are no threats on the horizon, both because we're basically we've learned off to you know to operate off of the money we have. We've had a very successful foundation fundraising agenda built. That's one of the things I've spent a lot of time working on building that from the ground up, and and now it's just really digging in, making our programs even more high quality metrics and measurement to demonstrate that our programs are high quality. And also a lot of um, kind of board transformation. We're working on diversifying our our board. That's a really important priority so that our board composition lines up more, you know, with the populations that we serve. So it's a, it's, it's a happy time. I mean, certainly that we, we hit bumps in the road, but, um, there's a lot of momentum and positive momentum. Uh, it's it's a different place now, and which is wonderful. Congratulations to you and your, and your team. I, I love how many times you've said uh, you've given credit to the, the team around you. And uh, but congratulations. I know that for me and for leaders that are listening in, uh, a lot of times we move on to the next challenge versus taking time to enjoy and celebrate when there are some wins uh, rather than fighting the you know the next dragon. So congratulations. I hope you and your team are able to feel the change along the way. Um, and, and this has been incredibly valuable. So thank you again for m- taking the time to do this, Sarah. I've loved it. So a- as we close, uh, what would you want to leave you know our listeners with? Well, Steve, first of all, thank you so much as well. It's been it's been really fun uh, to talk about my journey, but also to talk about Easter Seals and leadership generally. Um, I, you know, I think just going back to my team, I do want to thank my amazing team at Easter Seals serving Chicagoland and Greater Rockford. I'm really inspired by the work we do here every day. And I would encourage your listeners to check us out. Um, mm-hmm. We have a lot of services to offer. Um, we like to think of ourselves as a thought leader in the early childhood and disability space. And so please check out our website and we have a wonderful blog, um, that, that highlights and showcases some of our young people and programs. And so I invite your listeners to check that out. And, and the other thing I would say, and maybe this is looping back to the beginning, uh, where I talked about being a hybrid and, you know, you responded and said, this is really important to, for people to understand and to encourage them. And I guess what I would offer in closing is just don't be afraid to define your own path. One of the the analogies that I used when I was at University of Chicago is University of Chicago on the quad has all of these paved sidewalks, but there are these other parts of the campus that people insist on walking across to the point where it kills the grass and you can see you know, that they, they don't want to walk straight across. They want to, they want to walk diagonal because that's, that's the direction they want to go. And eventually, you know, the university kept reseeding those little footpaths forever. And then one day they just gave up and they just paved them (laughs) because they were, they were like, forget this. These people are not going to stop. 
And I like to think of the career path that I've had as wearing down that footpath to the point where someone finally paved it. And I think that is what I encourage people to do is you have to find out who you're supposed to be. And then you find pathways to mold your future around that. And the most important advice I can give on that is use your networks. You got to use your people to help you to do that. Um, Using those connections, getting advice. Uh, Certainly when I didn't know what I was doing in my early leadership days at the Urban Education Institute, and when I was tackling new challenges I had never seen at Easter Seals, my colleagues, my professional connections all across the country just gave me immense support and advice throughout all of that. So use your people and and forge your own path would be my kind of parting advice. Thank you so much, uh, Sarah. There's a ton here. And, and as always, uh, for those of us that are listening in, we will have uh, those links in the show notes. Please go to the websites, to the blog that she mentioned. Look her up on LinkedIn as well. Uh, Sarah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is Um, multifaceted, uh, my gratitude for the time, uh, but also the lessons that you shared here. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Steve. I enjoyed it very much. Takeaways and action items. I've got three for each. This conversation was too good to just do one on each side. So takeaways, number one, Prioritizing your time determines the success of you as a leader, me as a leader. We have to know where our time goes. Number two, know your why, your people, and your strengths. You're going to need all three to push through those giant mountains when we face them and the unknown of how we're going to get through in leadership. Know your why, your people, your strengths. You're going to need all three. And the third takeaway, The mission trumps personal opinion, and the leader owns each tough decision. Action items. Number one, look out 18 months like Sarah did. Where do you want to be? Professionally, personally, and then work backwards. Number two, answer the hard questions. Do you know your strengths or your people or your why? Number three, forge your own path if there isn't one. And who knows? A sidewalk might get laid for others after you walk through. If you found value in what you heard here, I encourage you to give us a written review in whatever platform you're using right now. We read all of them. It helps us reach more folks like you and it helps us bring more value to these episodes. And then I encourage you, to click the button, the like three dots, to send it to somebody else. This is so that we can spread encouragement. We have dozens of conversations that will aid in your growth as a leader, just like this one did. All you have to do is click subscribe in whatever platform you're using right now, and you will have access to all of the episodes just like magic. Well, I can't wait to be with you again soon. But until then, from all of us here at CCB Technology, thanks for listening.